You can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Um, just in case there were any young men trying to sneak out on the lesson to the young men, we're going to postpone the lesson to the young men for next week and talk a little bit about prayer tonight from James and other places. James chapter 5. It's a, it's a half of a verse which will lead us to a whole lot of other verses. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, perhaps you know it. Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here's the part I want to emphasize tonight. Halfway through 16, chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you believing your word, believing what it says about you, believing what it says about our world, but also eager to believe what it says you want to accomplish through us when we are in the weakness of the praying posture. I pray tonight that you would encourage us through the power of your Spirit to believe in prayer, to be strengthened by prayer, and to strengthen others through our prayers. We pray this all in your Son's name, through whom we come and through whom we ask all of these things. Amen. You need to believe in what you're going to do. Otherwise, you're not going to do what you need to do. You need to believe in what you are called to do. Otherwise, you're not going to follow through in those activities. Now, why does your teacher give you that big, scary, monstrous exam at the end of the semester? Because she wants you to believe that you need to read that textbook all semester long, right? You need to learn these things from this book and to encourage you to believe that you need to learn these things, I'm going to give you this test at the end of the semester. You could call it a motivation. And why does your driver's ed teacher... If your driver's ed teacher is anything like my driver's ed teacher was, show you hours after hours after hours of accident footage. <laughs> because he wants you to believe that you better buckle your seatbelt. Right? He wants you to believe that you better be careful you're handling a pretty powerful vehicle. Now, why am I about to give you a list of reasons for why you should believe in prayer? Because I want you to take one of these cards right over there at the end of this lesson, and I want you to do it with eagerness, with joy, and with sobriety. I want you to not say, oh boy, Hey, I've got to pray because Pastor David told me I need to pray for 30 minutes a day this next week, month. 
But I want you to attack this prayer challenge with joy and with eagerness and a little bit of sobriety. And say to yourself, I need to pray. I need to pray. I want you to believe in prayer. I want you to believe in uh, prayer's importance. I want you to believe in prayer's rightness. I want you to believe in prayer's joy. I want you to believe in the sobriety of a praying life. I want you to take away all of these things simply in the words, I believe in prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Why believe in prayer? Why spend all of this time praying? 15 and a half hours praying. Why why spend that amount of time in October praying? Because you believe in prayer. And let's encourage our hearts in what prayer is. I'm going to give you a few reasons why you should believe in prayer, why you should do prayer, why you should pray. But my, my goal is to increase your belief in prayer so that you are motivated to do it with joy and sobriety. Um, reason number one, you could say, for why you should believe in prayer and why you should do it, it is God's command. And this is always the easiest one, right? It is God's command. But I want to attack that point from a slightly different angle. It's God's command, therefore you should do it. But also think about the character of the God who commands you to pray. What kind of God is this? Who is this God who gives any commands? When we see in Scripture an explanation for why He is commanding people, what does it say about that God? Why does He give us commands? Well, Deuteronomy 6.24 gives you a reason why God commands His people. And I think we can apply it to the reason why God commands us to pray. It says this in Deuteronomy 6.24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Here's the key. For our good always. For our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Do you believe that about God's commands? That God, being an all-good God commands things for your good always. Obedience to God is always for your good. But simply, you should believe in prayer because of why? The God who commands it, right? God commands prayer. And that should cause you to instantly attack prayer with joy, with sobriety, and with eagerness because it is coming from a good and gracious God. Another reason to believe in prayer tonight, it's God's right. You could say it's God's worth, it's God's prerogative. Prerogative is a big word that I always have to look it up. I know know the word, but I don't always know what it means. Prerogative means someone's exclusive privilege, someone's power that they inherit with a certain office that they possess. So a certain king perhaps has a prerogative. He has a certain prerogative. That is something that he inherits. That is an exclusive privilege that belongs to him. Well, prayer to God, praise to God, is what is right and what is fitting to a God like our God. 
We should pray to God simply because He is God. We should praise and worship God because He is God. It is His right. Think about it this way. Even if God's command to you to pray was ununderstandable to you, even if God's command to pray had no benefit in your life ever, you should still pray because it is fitting. God still deserves prayer. God still deserves praise. Even if it never benefits me in my life, God deserves it. God deserves it. When you pray, you are essentially saying this. You are saying, you are God and I am not. Not my feelings, not my emotions, not what I want to do, but what you want to do is what's most important to me. It's God's right. It says this in in Psalms, right? Uh, Praise and prayer is fitting of the upright. Psalm 33. These are two reasons to pray. And they're good reasons to pray, aren't they? You could say, these are good enough for me reasons. It's like, David, there you go. Let's go to small groups. I'm done. Those are good enough reasons for me. But our God is gracious, and He even gives us more benefits and reasons to pray beyond even these. Beyond even these. Let's talk about a third reason to pray. And I'm I'm going to admit, this reason I'm going to explain in later reasons. But let's just say it simply right now. Reason number three, you, you should pray, you should believe in prayer, because prayer is actually good for you. Prayer is a benefit to you. Prayer is something you should desire. Prayer is something you desperately need in your life. Because it's good for you. Prayer changes your perspective on life. You need to close your eyes so that you can truly see the world as it is, don't you? You need to stop trying to figure out everything on your own and start realizing the God who is in control of everything and who is all wise and all powerful. You need to close your eyes so that you can truly see. Prayer also changes your heart attitude, right? It is hard for me to be angry at someone when I am praying for them. Prayer pricks and provokes my conscience for where I am deficient. Prayer reminds me, alerts me to where I am struggling. Prayer is good for you. Prayer changes your perspective. Prayer changes your heart attitude. I would even say prayer changes your ability. But we need to go to other places to see that. But all to say, prayer is good for you. And you know it's good for you. Prayer is good for you. I never regret seasons of prayer in my life. I never do. It's hard, it's difficult, it takes discipline, but I never regret it. I never regret it. Here's a, here's a fourth reason. Not only is it God's command, it's God's right, it's good for you, but number four, it's neglect 
has a sobering effect. When you neglect prayer, bad things happen. It's neglected to sobering effect. You're in James chapter 5. Just look over at James chapter 4. What do you see? James says this in chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Notice what he's saying there. Where is, where is all this stuff coming from? What happens when you neglect prayer in your life? Bad things. Quarreling, fights, anger, evil desire. That's what happens. That's what's in your heart when prayer is not in your life, when it's not a fixture of your life. Sin is the consequence of prayerlessness, you could say. Such evil sin as this. To uh, quote J Street, who was quoting Stuart Scott. So there's three levels of quotes right here. You see that? He said this, Our sins of omission lead to our sins of commission. Now, if you don't know what that means, let's break it down really quick, right? Omission means something you are failing to do that you should do, right? I I should do this. I should be doing that. I should be doing this. Commission is doing something that you shouldn't do. I shouldn't be doing this, but I am. I shouldn't be thinking this, but I am. I shouldn't be allowing this feeling to continue unchecked in my heart, but it is. Feelings, actions, commissions, all of these commissions come after a failure in omission. Or to say it like this, you want to know where wars and threats and all these problems come in your heart? It comes from omitting certain things in your life. And, and James tells you exactly what you're omitting. You are asking for things either wrongly or you're not asking at all. Prayer is not happening in your life. What comes before anxiety What comes before debilitating depression? What comes before angry outbursts? What comes before lustful explosions? Well, proud self-sufficiency, right? I got this. This is easy. I can handle this. I'll get through this. I'll just kind of hang on and and make it through. Proud self-sufficiency. That's what comes before sin. It's somebody who doesn't need to ask because it's somebody who's got it all under control themselves, right? There's that song that you know because you've sung it from you know nursery, right? Um, what a friend we have in Jesus, you know. What a friend we have in Jesus. La, 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 la. What, what, what does it say about needless pain? What does it say about needless pain? 
needless pain we bear because we do not care yeah. Oh, the needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Suggesting something to you, right? You don't need to have this pain. You don't need to experience this trouble in your life. But but why are you experiencing needless pain in your life? Because prayerlessness is in your life and in your heart. I like H.B. Uh, Charles. He says, I am determined to not experience any needless pain in my life. Right? I want to live in such a way where I minimize pain. Because it's needless. Not all pain can be avoided. But I want to avoid the, the needless kind. The kind that comes from prayerlessness. Now, what am I calling you to? Am I calling you to to some sort of like rigid, mindless recitation of a prayer? If I just say the Lord's Prayer every single morning, good things will happen and nothing bad will happen. No, obviously not that either, because look at what James also has to say. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What are their passions? Verse 4, you adulterous people, they're adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of of God. They are asking according to their own worldly pleasures, their friendship with the world. Their idolatry of the world and its things and its desires. That is what's coming from these prayers that they do pray. It's not that these people are never praying. It's that when they do pray, it's mindless. They're thinking they're going to just ritualize their way into God's favor and God's blessing. James says, you got problems in your life and it's because you're not praying and it's because you are praying. But you're praying in the wrong way. It's very clear there is a kind of prayer God doesn't answer as well. It's an unrighteous, sin-desiring kind of prayer. Or write down this uh, reference, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear me. The Lord shuts his ears to hear my prayer. It's not the words you speak as much as the heart that you bring that indicates whether your prayers are answered or heard. That's that's a sobering reason. If you neglect prayer, there is a sobering consequence that will wreak havoc in your life, right? Here's another reason, reason number five. On a positive side, if we can dig our way out of this positive side, and I think we can, why believe in prayer? It's God's means. It's God's means. What do I mean by it's God's means? It's God's means of transforming your life and the lives of those around you. It's God's means of changing your life according to His will and His plan for your good and for His glory. It's God's means. That's exciting. Notice what I'm not saying here in this point. I'm not just saying 
it's good for you. I said that before, and I meant it, and it was true, but, but it's more than that. It's not just some subjective change that comes to your attitude or to your mind or to your feelings about your situation. It is actual change that God wants to bring in the lives of those people around you and in your life simply because you are praying. Prayer is greater than just a subjective internal feeling of comfort inside of me. Prayer is God's means of moving his plan forward in the world. It's not just a commanded thing. That would be good enough, remember? It's not just his prerogative. That's good enough. It's not just a personal thing that it does good for you. It's not just a protection thing that you should do this in order to avoid evil and sin. It is also a privileged thing, is it not? Prayer is a high privilege In prayer, you get to participate in the work of God, both in your life and in the lives of the people around you. In prayer, the omnipotent, omniscient God chooses to stoop down, chooses to condescend, to work as a result of you. That's what prayer is. God working through a weak person like you. God choosing to use you as the means to drive his mission. Now there's a question, of course, that probably probably alarm lights are going on in your head. Sounds kind of strange. Why would he do that? Why would the God of the universe do that? Well, let me clarify it. It's not out of need. It's not out of need. God doesn't need your prayers. I would suggest to you that God would do a whole lot better if he just ignored the whole prayer angle. In a joke. I would also say this. This is not a way that God is limiting himself. God is not limited to only work in the world through our prayers. Thank God for his free sovereignty in this world. Thank God that he does what he chooses when he chooses without consulting anyone's opinions or seeking anyone's requests. Otherwise, none of us would be here tonight, would we? No, it's this. God in His infinite wisdom that we do not fully understand chooses to regularly display His power through our weakness. This is how God has chosen in His wisdom to display His great power through the weakness of you on your Knees. I mean, can you think of an activity that's less active than prayer? You're sitting on your knees, your hands are together, and your eyes are closed. Nothing is happening in that moment. And that is why God chooses it in His wisdom to display His power. 
you, you can't walk away from an answer to prayer and like, well, good thing I was praying. It was all on me. No, you come away from an answer to prayer like, look at the power and grace of God that He worked through something as weak as me simply crying to Him. God's strength is known to us in prayer because our weakness is known to us in our prayer. A prayer you could define as this. It is demonstrated dependence. You are physically, actively showing that you are dependent on God totally in every area of your life. It is demonstrated dependence. It is not saying, you know, I'm going to pray while I'm driving to work, although that's a good thing to do. It's not just simply saying, I'm going to pray while I'm doing my homework, although that is a very good thing to do. It's not simply saying, I'm going to pray while I'm talking to people in the way, although that's a very good thing to do. It is, at times, stopping other things to do one thing, and that is pray to God. I would suggest you need it. You need to regularly become acquainted with how much you can't do in a situation and how much God must do in a situation. There's this great uh, Jerry Bridges quote, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Even on your worst day or on your best day, you need God's grace and that comes to you. How? Hebrews 4. Through prayer. Through prayer. It's kind of like an older brother. Maybe some of you have an older brother. Maybe some of you are the older brother. Maybe some of you know an older brother. Either way, you hopefully will understand this illustration. Uh, if you have an older brother like my older brother and you play basketball together... He has this way of reminding you that he's better than you. And, and it's a very wise way. This is what he does. He doesn't just play you one-on-one. He says, you go get a friend. Any friend. Any friend in the neighborhood you can find. I'll play you both. And, and if that wasn't good enough, he says, under one condition. You get your friend, and what? And I get my friend. And who does he get? He gets your younger brother, who falls over when he walks. (laughs) But why does he get your younger brother who falls over when he walks? Because he wants to demonstrate that he can beat you even with your younger brother who falls over, right? Look at the power of my basketball skills. I can beat you with him. Sometimes I feel like that's what prayer is like. God says, I can win. I can bring about my powerful, wise purposes through the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the lives of my people. Through the guidance of God's word, I am bringing about my powerful work through the prayers of my weak people. Just to show to all those watching how great and powerful I am. That's why God would do it, sure. But is that true? 
Is that true? Now, that's something you should always ask when you hear something wonderful from a pulpit. That sounds great, but is it true? Let me try to answer that in, in two ways. And this is my argument. Are you ready? By all my study, yes. And I've got an argument, don't worry. Um, that's, I would say, how Scripture models prayer. And that's also how Scripture exhorts us in prayer. Scripture in its model and Scripture in its exhortation say this, you should pray about everything. And you should pray as those who are bringing about tremendous good and grace and mercy from God to those around you and in your life. Let me just quickly walk you through this. A Scripture's model. Do we see this as Scripture's model? I would say yes. And just to prove my point and to not belabor this point, I want to demonstrate that this is Scripture's model through one example. One person in the Bible who often models this as God's way with our prayers. And of course, you are familiar with this man. It's Paul. Do you ever notice how absolutely key and fundamental prayer was in the life of the Apostle Paul? Prayer was everything to him. He did nothing without prayer. For example, uh, Romans 15, 30 through 32. Um, Paul, after this tremendous articulation of the gospel and the wisdom of God in the gospel, pleads, after talking about the power of God, the might of God, the wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God in salvation, Paul pleads for the Roman church to pray for him as he journeys on his way to complete God's work in Jerusalem. Notice what he says. He says this in Romans 15, 30-32. Pray for me that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be accepted to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Everything requires prayer. His deliverance requires prayer. His service requires prayer, that it may be accepted to believers. And then his coming to them and being received and refreshed by them also requires prayer. Preparation prayer. Everything to Paul was by prayer and through prayer. The good things, the hard things of life, the, the, the glorious ministries of life, it was all by prayer. Or you could look over at 2 Thessalonians 3.1. This is prayer, not just of himself, but for others, was essential also to Paul's evangelism. I love this verse. He says, pray that the, that the word may spread ahead and be honored, right? The word doesn't go anywhere, it seems, to Paul without the prayers of his people. Or how about this? This is crazy to me. Ephesians 6.19 After one of the great 
recitations of gospel theology. You may have heard of it. It's called the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, after, after so clearly explaining the gospel, what does Paul ask prayer for from the Ephesians? That words may be given to me in opening my mo- mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel. He's acting as though he can't say a word that's helpful without the power of God and the power of the Spirit. Opening his mouth like a baby. Or how about Philippians one nineteen? Paul has an eager expectation of release, release, yet he still urges, he urges them to pray for him in this matter. And those are just the ones I could think of. It's clear to me that Paul believed God's power was on display in prayer. He believed God's power came through the means of prayer. It was essential. It was essential for good to happen, and it was essential to avoid bad. Not all bad, but the bad that is outside God's will. And here's the simple application to you, right? If Paul needed prayer that much, how much more do you? Right? I mean... Steve already made the application of, if Jesus needed prayer, how much more do you? But this is a slightly lesser application, but still has power because we know who Paul is. If Paul required prayer that much in his life, how much more do you? Paul says this, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfast in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. That's what Paul is telling us. By the way, what does that mean, H.B.? Uh, Charles also has this quote that I really like. What, what does this mean? Does it mean that you should do nothing but pray? No. It means that you are to do nothing without prayer. That's the example of Paul. That's, that's the demonstration of belief in the life of Paul. He demonstrated belief in prayer all the time. Frequently. But what about Scripture's exhortation? I'd also say Scripture clearly exhorts you to pray in a way that believes it is God's means to bring about true transformation and change in your life and in the life of those around you as well. Turn back to James if you've turned away at all. Turn back to James. We've already seen in James chapter 4, verse 2, you don't have some things because you don't pray. We've already seen in James 4, 2, you do have some things because you do pray, but in the wrong way. But in James chapter 5, we see that God's grace and mercy and power are revealed through his people's prayer. And he commands the people to pray. Uh, James is making a command. So let's read James uh, 5, 13. 13 all the way down through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Here we have a command to pray. And notice, notice verse 13. You, there is not a situation in which prayer or praise is not appropriate. You can be weak or you can be strong. You can be, you can be plummeting or you can be flourishing. And praise and prayer is still commanded. Commanded in every circumstance. But what's going on here? What's, what's going on with this, this idea of someone being sick and calling for the elders? And the prayer of faith saving someone? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. This passage is what you like to call an interpretive jungle. There's a lot of things going on here. There's anointing with oil, all of these questions. What exactly is the problem that this passage is even talking about? I can't go into it, but let me just give you briefly the views real quick. Is this some sort of physical sickness? that's going on here. And the, this man is going to the elders for a physical sickness. Is this something deeper, something worse than a physical ailment? Is this a spiritual sickness that may have some manifestations physically? Or is this a mixture of both? You cannot open a commentary without having to deal with this question. And it is a good question, right? Should I do this? Should I go to the elders every time I have a cough? <laughs> Important questions? Well, here's uh, a few interpretive clues, and I'll help you maybe make sense of this. Number one, I would suggest that perhaps, perhaps two things are going on here. The person is spiritually ill and physically ill, and one is causing the other. And I would suggest to you that perhaps this isn't a situation that always happens. Well, and there's other things here, too. The, the language is a little ambig- ambiguous. First off, sickness here can mean weakness. Matter of fact, frequently it refers to spiritual weakness. In the epistles, it refers to sickness in the Gospels generally, but spiritual weakness often enough. And, and that's really just the meaning of the word. It means you are weak. You are buried down by some sort of thing that you are struggling with. And also there's some strong language here that uh, have special spiritual connotation. For example, raise up. Is that raising up from the sickbed or is that raising up some sort of sense spiritually? And then I, I want you to notice verse 16. Notice, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It seems as though the illness, the sickness, the weakness, whatever it is, is strongly associated with sin. And let me remind you, not all sickness is the result of sin. Not all weakness is the result of sin. And then also there's this staggering promise, right? Confess, pray, and you will be healed. So maybe something other than just typical human sickness is at play here. My suspicion, and I've already kind of told you, that this appears to be a moral sickness. that has a moral quality to it as primary. It may result in physical problems. If you're familiar with Psalm 32, you know that David's physical sin 
or spiritual sin resulted in a lot of physical problems that aren't really told to us in the narrative of Samuel, but we see in Psalm 32 that his body is falling apart because of his spiritual sin against God. So it could be a result of sin, it could have physical components, but notice there is a special confessional component to this healing. So so I would suggest to you that this is some sort of spiritual problem, some sort of spiritual weakness that is primarily happening. And and notice the the man has to go to the elders. He doesn't go to someone with a gift of healing, whatever that is. He goes to those people in spiritual authority, those people who are spiritually strong, to help him with his weakness, which is connected to sin that he needs to confess. So perhaps a sin is in his life that God is forcing him to deal with because of the physical ramifications in his life. Maybe it's discouragement, maybe it's depression, maybe it's something else. Either way, it is very clear to him that confession is necessary. But I don't really want you to to notice all that. I want you to notice this. There is a kind of prayer God calls you to pray here. And it is a means of mercy and grace in the life of another. It has transforming power. And just in principle form, you can see that, right? Believers have an ability to help someone else through their prayers. A a few just conclusions here. These aren't worded maybe perhaps the most clearly, so you can try to write them down, but I'll just try to say some kind of points in observation, what this means to us. First off, sometimes it appears to me that God makes you weak so that you go to Him in prayer. Right? Sometimes God makes you weak so that He can grab your attention. Sometimes God weakens your body so that he can strengthen your soul. And another thing I want to point out about this, another conclusion I want to make, when you are spiritually weak, you need someone who is spiritually strong. Sometimes spiritual weakness results in a cloudiness of brain. And you need someone who is spiritually strong in your life. We have this idea here of you who are weak, go to those who are strong. We don't have an idea here of, hey, you who are sick, go get healing. No, there's a, there's a spiritual strength that is needed here. This is a spiritual issue. This is apparently a discipline issue. It reminds me of Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Think about it this way. Sometimes asking someone else for prayer is, is the, the beginning of a life that believes in prayer. Simply, simply confessing that I need prayer Simply confessing that I am weak and need someone who is strong around me to pray for me is the beginning of a life that believes in prayer. Or here's another conclusion. 
the, the recipe of a strong or an expectant prayer that we see here isn't necessarily the words you speak, but the holiness of your life, right? That, that's what the emphasis here is. James is not saying pray this way, but James is saying the, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Why does God hear his prayer? Because his life pleases God. Because this person knows their God and knows how to pray to him. And therefore their prayer is pleasing. And uh, one more thing, just to, just to kind of comment on in, the, in these verses. It seems to me that God works through the spiritually strong who are often made that way because they are physically weak. Now, that maybe doesn't stand out to you as much in the passage, but I want you to notice the very fascinating illustration that James now ties in to explain powerful prayer. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a like uh, a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently, or literally, he prayed with prayer. That it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is an interesting illustration for him to use. Well, because, well, it's, it's an obvious maybe to you, right? What better example of prayer than we, do we have than the life of Elijah? But notice what he emphasizes about Elijah. He was someone with a like nature as ours. And notice the example he uses is not an example of Elijah's prayers actually healing someone, but Elijah's prayers doing something great and powerful. But the emphasis here is he has a like nature to ours. God didn't answer his prayers because he was different than you. God answered his prayers even though he was very similar to you in in weakness. What do we know about Elijah? We know a lot of weak things about Elijah. He experienced the weakness of hunger. He experienced the weakness of fear. I mean, right after Mount, Mount, Mount Carmel. You remember that? He should be at the highest point in his life. And what is he doing? Right after God uses his prayers to call down fire from heaven, right after God uses his prayers as a means to restore rain to the earth, what is he doing? He is running and hiding in fear. And he felt the weakness of depression and discouragement as well. He runs away in fear and is depressed and discouraged. And God used his prayer to bring about great mercy and great grace. Is James trying to get your attention about something? Is James trying to say, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about people that trust in their God. I'm talking about faith that has been sharpened through trials. But I'm talking about people that love their God exclusively and trust Him. Are not perfect, but they depend on Him. And they pray to Him with prayer. They pray fervently to their God. Righteous prayers have power. 
fervent prayers have power. Weak prayers have power. Not because of who we are, but because who the God is that we are praying. So simply, believe in prayer. Believe in prayer. Prayer, it promotes God's glory exclusively, like nothing else. Prayer, it promotes your joy and assures you of God's sufficiency in all circumstances. Prayer, it promotes the abundance of fruit in your life and the absence of needless pains that you bear. Pray. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this moment here tonight that we get to discuss these things. And I pray that this would be helpful and encouraging. I pray in small group time that we would be alert and attentive and think clearly about how we can pray better and be strengthened in prayer through one another's encouragement even tonight. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.